Hello, everyone. My name is Joshua Gilliland, and I'm one of the founding attorneys of the Legal Geeks. Thank you for joining us at WonderCon at home for the bright legal future of Star Trek. Our panelists today include Circuit Judge John Owens from the Ninth Circuit, Bethany Bengford, Steve Chu, Nari Ely, and myself, who will be moderating. Uh, everyone, how are you today? Great, Josh. Great, thank you. Glad to be here. Hopefully living long and prospering. Always. So our panel today will talk about some of the big issues that we've seen in Star Trek from all generations. We'll hit the rule of law. We'll address representation in the practice of law. We'll talk about refugees, rights of artificial life, that wonderful issue with Tuvix, and lots of trial advocacy. First up, season three of Discovery really did a nice job getting into the importance of the rule of law. In the second episode, uh, Far From Home, we have a colony where people on this outpost are being harassed and threatened by a broker who People are harassed by a broker who really does lean into bullying and not following any sort of rules. Society devolved into a giant barter system because warp drive failed and the Federation basically collapsed from it. What's fascinating about season three is we have people who are holding on to the, uh, their faith in the Federation the idea of the rule of law, that if something goes wrong, there will be others who will help, that there are laws that protect people's civil rights. And for today, we have seen that and experienced it across our society. And it is a wonderful snapshot of being able to understand bullies and the rule of the gun is not how anyone wants to live. Equality under the rule of law really is the goal of the Federation and season three of Discovery does a nice job of hitting some of those big issues. Which brings us to the importance of the law and trials. And I wanna bring up Circuit Judge Owens to talk about lower decks and how we see the rule of law and trials uh, in this masterful animated series. Judge Owens. Yeah, thanks so much. So for those of you who haven't seen Lower Decks, it's a fantastic show. And I will confess, I was a little bit skeptical of some of these new Star Trek shows. Uh, and I recommend everyone to check them out. But why am I showing a slide from the original series? Uh, well, this is my favorite episode. This comes from The Balance of Terror. It's at the very end of the episode when Captain Kirk is consoling now the widow of the woman who was about to be married to Lieutenant Tomlinson who passed away during the attack with the Romulans. He leaves the chapel and is walking down the hallway and all of a sudden you see, I'm sorry to use this word, a menagerie of people walking by. And this is a screenshot from that episode. If you've seen that episode of Bounds of Terror, you remember how many people walked by. And I've always wondered, who were those people? Like that guy in the blue jumpsuit. Where is he going? What is he doing? In the episode, a guy carrying a tube walks right by him. What was in that tube? Was it a poster? Was it like dilithium crystals? 
what are they doing? And the show Lower Decks does a fantastic job in a very funny way of explaining the lives of these people who you would see when the doors would open by sick bay and someone would walk by or the conference room. It really delves into their lives. And the show itself does a fantastic job of highlighting some of the important messages of Star Trek while at the same time having a great sense of humor about it. I found myself laughing constantly during the show. I really recommend everyone to see it. It's on the CBS All Access platform. So uh, a couple things about the show before we delve into the trial, some things I appreciated. Uh, we, when we think of Star Trek, we think of these majestic ships, the Enterprise, the Excelsior, the Reliant, the Excalibur. Apparently, uh, when you get down to some of those kind of class B ships, as I call them those, uh, they don't have so, such majestic names. They have names from random cities in California. Uh, the main ship is the Cerritos. But we also hear about the Rubido, the Merced, the Oakland, the Alhambra, the San Clemente, the Solvang, and the Sacramento. So clearly the writers love California, love WonderCon and Anaheim, because a lot of these cities are very close to there. And it was just kind of a nice wink to those of us who are big Star Trek fans. Other things I found interesting about Lower Decks, little throwback things. There's a Gorn wedding in this particular episode. Uh, the salt vampire from the man trap, the very first episode of Star Trek to ever air, makes an appearance. And apparently they still use lint rollers in the future. That's one of the things I learned from Lower Decks. All right, so now let's actually get down to this episode in particularly, Veritas. And what it tells us is that Star Trek, as the slide here says, Star Trek is all about trial. Every version of the show has had trials. Sometimes they're very traditional trials, like the episode Court Martial, the episode Menagerie with the fate of Captain Pike, and that's actually with the judge and defense lawyers and so forth. But then of course we know about all the other trials we have, like the arena, uh, the, with my, one of my favorite, not really a villain, but characters, the Gorn. There's the episode, the Savage Curtain from the first Star Trek where Abraham Lincoln is flying in space, maybe not one of the best Star Trek episodes ever. But again, different types of trial, trial versus good versus evil, trial whether Captain Kirk should be court-martialed and so forth. So imagine that menagerie, we we'll use that word again, of trials, we're gonna mix them up into the episode of Veritas. So <laughs> as you can see from this slide, and as one of the characters says in the episode, I think it's Rutherford, gosh, this is Alien Trial 101. As you can see from this slide, this courtroom looks very much like a Klingon courtroom a Klingon courtroom we've seen in Judgment, a Klingon courtroom we've seen in Star Trek VI, the movie. Uh, there is the, uh, the mysterious figures high up in the air. Uh, this one, this particular trial, we actually get a verdict in, in well, yeah, we kind of do, we kind of don't get a verdict in this one. I don't want to give away the ending. But one thing I really appreciate about this one is that this is an is inquisitorial trial. There's no defense counsel. This is this guy in green you see here, uh, going at these four young members of the lower deck. Now, I don't want to spoil the ending of this one because it has a great little twist, but I do want to talk about some of the legal concepts that come up here. So first, as I mentioned, there was no defense attorney. Now, sometimes that's a bad thing at Star Trek. Sometimes you want a defense attorney. In court martial, Captain Kirk had a great defense attorney. Uh, sometimes you don't want a defense attorney. If you're being tried in the Cardassian system of justice, a uh, defense attorney is like a second prosecutor, maybe even worse than that. Now, you saw from the previous slide that the four crew members were all together testifying one after the other. In our court system here, in the federal court system, there's something called the witness exclusion rule. 
Fed Rule of Evidence 615, which does not permit witnesses to listen to each other's testimony, absent some very unusual circumstances. Apparently, 615 did not make it to this galaxy because they uh, repeatedly testified each other. And then the concept of contempt, punishment for not answering either the courts or an advocate's questions. Well, there is contempt here, uh, but it's not to be thrown in jail or fined. It is to be put into a vat of eels, which is kind of an odd take. And then lastly, I think this is great. The, the horn he's holding right there, I believe it's called the horn of Kandar, Kandar in other words. Uh, there are references to Drumhead, references to all kinds of, of the great Star Trek trial episodes. So uh, great episode, great series. If you haven't checked it out, please do so. Thank you, Your Honor. Bethany, let's talk about the importance of the right to life for artificial beings and whether or not the Federation could just simply ban all artificial life. Absolutely. Now, uh, this was one of my favorite parts of of Picard was actually thinking about the synth ban. Uh, so what had happened was uh, a group of A500s, I guess, for appearances, so it's a little complicated what actually happened, but they went rogue and they uh, attacked a fleet that was being built to aid in the evacua evacuation of Romulus. Um, and when they went rogue and attacked, they killed over 92,000 people, so a lot of people. And so this caused a huge upheaval, uh, a huge backlash, and the Federation ended up implementing what they called a synth ban. Now this ban had three parts. Uh, the first was that it banned the creation of new synthetics. The second was that all existing synthetics were dismantled. And then the third is that it prohibited any sort of research or dissemination of information about building synthetic life. And I thought this was super interesting. And I thought I would take a look at uh, the three different parts focusing on uh, the actual ban of creating nuisance. But first, just to touch on the first two, um, the halt on research. So I guess analyzing this from a frame of would, would this type of ban be constitutional in the United States? Um, so the halt on all research, I think there's no argument that that would be constitutional. I think that would be a grave violation of the First Amendment. It is extremely broad saying that you can't research something. And, you know, that is, you know, being able to learn or to disseminate information is, is pretty fu fundamental First Amendment right. Um, but the question about what about disseminating the schematics, the actual schematics to build a synth? And I thought that was super interesting because there's kind of an allegory in the law right now to uh, disseminating the schematics to print 3D guns. Um, and that has been challenged on First Amendment grounds in recent years. Um, and what at least one district court has found is that you perhaps can't ban the dissemination of schematics like that within the United States but you can ban uploading them to the internet under the Arms Export Control Act, which basically is a prohibition on the dissemination or export or import of certain types of firearms. So they say, well, when you upload the schematics to the internet, you're actually disseminating them or exporting them to other countries. And that is um, validly controlled by the Export Control Act. But as long as you can still disseminate the information within the United States freely, then it is not a violation of the First Amendment. So if you look at since 
as if there were weapons, which is problematic in its own ways, but if there was a valid argument for that, uh, then potentially there could be some restrictions on the dissemination of schematics or directions on how to build them. Um, the, but again, this hasn't been tested, but that, that's a legal theory anyway. Um, the second one, dismantling all operating androids. I think that really goes to the essence of the question of, do they have rights or not? Are they machines? Are they people? And this was a question that was very well articulated, uh, you know, many years earlier in Measure of a Man. And there was precedent um, based on that episode in which a judge found that they did not have the right to force data to be dismantled um, just for examination. Uh, that precedent would seem to contradict the synth ban part of the ban that says you can dismantle all existing androids. And it'd be interesting me to me to see how the Federation actually dealt with that precedent in issuing this rule. But the third part of that that I really wanted to focus on was the ban on creating new synths. Uh, again, the, if, if synths are viewed as more of a weapon, um, which I think would be a difficult argument to make, uh, given that you know synths had been operating peacefully for many years. Um, but if you view them as sentient life, could you ban their creation? And I think there are some interesting parallels to that in uh, constitutional law in terms of the right to procreate. Um, so in 1935 in Skinner versus Oklahoma, the United States Supreme Court ruled unconstitutional the Habitual Criminal Sterilization Act, which allowed the state to impose a sentence of compulsory sterilization as part of their judgment against individuals who have been convicted of three or more crimes of moral turpitude, which is a term of art that people love to use in the legal world, um, basically thing, crimes that we consider to be really wrong or really immoral is a crime of moral turpitude. And so what they said is that the right to procreate is a basic civil right of man. Uh, it's not actually enumerated anywhere in the Constitution. The Constitution doesn't say uh, the government shall not infringe the right to have children of any man. Um, but the justice in this case determined, hey, this doesn't need to be explicitly enumerated. It's a basic civil right, and therefore it merits equal protection under the 14th Amendment. Um, and this was a very sharp departure from a previous case, Buck versus Bell, where the court upheld mandatory sterilization of the mentally handicapped in state institutions, which was a pretty horrific uh, decision um, that had a very infamous justification that it is better for the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can pre prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. And so you can sort of see parallels to that, to the synth ban, which is basically like these people are too dangerous we should not allow their creation. They are inherently too dangerous. And um, it really kind of echoes that, you know, now considered pretty terrible Supreme Court decision. So while it's clear now that forcible sterilization, completely preventing someone from having children at all is unconstitutional, uh, there are questions about how much you can limit the right to procreate. And so 
State versus Oakley was a pretty controversial Wisconsin Supreme Court decision in which the state court found that uh, the Supreme Court found that uh, it was okay to prohibit someone from having children until they could uh, prove that they were capable of providing child support to the children they already had. It was a very controversial decision, but they found, hey, we're not preventing this person from having children at all. He already has nine children. We are just making sure that he supports the children he already has before he can have more. And this just sparked a huge debate over the extent to which you can limit the right to procreate. Um, another allegory of that is debate over whether a policy to limit the number of children people have in the United States could actually pass constitutional muster. Um, and I think the answer to that is, so what Skinner versus Oklahoma said was not that you can't put limits on procreation at all. What it said was that any limit on procreation uh, is analyzed under strict scrutiny. And what that means is there needs to be a compelling governmental interest and then the law must be narrowly tailored to achieve that interest. So here in relation to the synth ban, I think the argument would be, well, these synths went rogue and killed 92,000 people. There is a compelling government interest in preventing that from happening in the future. Uh, I think the real question would be whether the law, the absolute ban on synths was the most narrowly tailored law to achieve that interest. Uh, and I think that you know, you could have a fierce debate over that, which I, I won't get into right now, but uh, it's a very interesting question um, and uh, one that would be very fascinating to explore further. Thank you, Bethany. Leaning into this, the idea of having synths dismantled, mm -hmm. doesn't that sound a lot like forced euthanasia, which without a trial, which is highly problematic because you're basically executing people. Yes, it, I mean, again, that really depends on whether or not they are viewed as people, right? And I think the law has, I mean, it, there has been really problematic cases that have stemmed from certain types of people like the mentally ill or like people of different races not being viewed as people. And that is when you get these really sorts of problematic decisions and, and things that, reverberate throughout history. Let's touch on one of the other issues in Picard dealing with synths. And, um, uh, you know, we have people, we have characters that either murder other people, like Maddox gets murdered, Seven of Nine goes on a killing spree, mm -hmm. and those are mulligans. Like, there's no legal repercussions for the fact they murdered people. Mm -hmm. We have Soji, who attempts genocide of all organic life in the universe, and she gets a mulligan. Could you share your thoughts on, is that okay? <laughs> like, do we, do we want that? Because you can attempt a crime and still be charged for the attempt of carrying out that crime. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a really good question. We really want to incentivize people from not to not commit crimes, so to stop committing crimes they may have intended to to commit. Uh, but you know, it's a good question. Here, could Soji actually be prosecuted for attempt? Um, so the two elements of attempted murder are you have to take at least one direct step towards the murder of another person. Uh, I think that 
here that that is absolutely fulfilled. Soji attempts to send out a beacon that could potentially bring the alliance of synthetic life to come destroy all organic life in the universe. Uh, and it's definitely ineffective because it doesn't end up happening. Um, that's what ineffective means, that it's attempted murder and not murder because nobody ends up dying. Um, the harder question, I think, is that whether she intended to kill all organic life. So what she definitely was attempting to do, so what, what happens is that um, the Romulans are coming to wipe out this colony of synthetic life forms on this planet uh, because the Romulans believe that they are going to end up destroying all organic life, which is a terrible thing. Um, and so Soji, who understandably does not want to be killed and does not want, you know, all synthetic life to be killed, uh, believes that the only thing she can do to stop it is to call on this alliance of synthetic life who will come. And it is not entirely clear whether they intend to or are going to wipe out or get all organic life. It's definitely a possibility, um, but there is a message from them that basically says humans will destroy themselves in their efforts to destroy us. We will come protect you. And there's like, it's definitely very hinted that they're gonna destroy all nonsense life in the universe. And so she, while she may not, I mean, she certainly intended to kill the Romulans who were coming to attack her. I think that could be analyzed under uh, a different lens, like if she only intended to kill them, whether it's, again, we'll get into self-defense in a second or, you know, an act of war or something like that, just, but she definitely at least didn't care about the extremely high risk of the sense coming to destroy all human life. Uh, which under the law would be called extreme indifference to human life, which is, you know, second degree murder or uh, um, something that would permit you to find second degree murder. Um, and I think that is like a very classic example here. Uh, so, so I think the, the two elements of attempt are uh, met in some way. Well, let's hope she has a good defense attorney. Let's well, turn now to... Uh, uh, the, the other defense that she could have, uh, you know, she renounced the, the attack. Right. Well, okay. So first, just touching on the self-defense issue, she's definitely, so for self-defense, you have to have a reasonable belief that danger is imminent. The Romulans are coming to wipe them all out. I think that is a re reasonable belief. The Romulans are there, so danger is imminent. Um, the second part of that, though, that she might struggle with is that the degree of force used to protect yourself generally must be proportionate to the danger you face. And so it is unclear whether calling on an alien life form to come wipe out all organic life in the universe would be a proportional response. Um, so that might, might be tough for a self-defense issue. Uh, but then there is something that I actually think probably would apply um, called renunciation, which is it's, you have an affirmative defense if you abandon your effort to the, commit the crime or otherwise prevent its commission um, complete voluntary renunciation. So by the end of the episode, she does stop calling the beacon. She does end up not calling these creatures. They kind of retreat. The big claw arms go back into their hole. Um, the problem for Soja here, though, is that first, not all states allow a renunciation defense. Um, and so it really depends under which jurisdiction she's being prosecuted. I, I don't think federal courts have a, an explicit renunciation defense either. Um, and then some states require you to take an affirmative act to prevent the crime from occurring. 
it's arguable that her stopping the beacon was a preventative act. It could also have been a cessation of the crime. I think you could argue that either way, but I still think she has a pretty good shot in a state that has a renunciation defense. Excellent. Well, let's get into some of the, the other legal issues from Star Trek that we know and love, and that's Tuvix. Uh, Nari, you know, you get a transport accident that fuses two people into one. Is it okay to separate them and kill the new guy? And you're on mute. <laughs> so uh, I just wanted to mention that um, this question actually came to me from a fan um, and I couldn't believe what a good question it was. So to give a very quick recap of this episode, um, in the uh, episode titled Tuvix of Voyager, I believe it's in season two, there is a transporter accident while Tuvok, the chief of security, and Neelix, the beloved or hated, depending on how you look at him, ship's cook, um, is uh, merged basically into a a third person who shares characteristics of both, including down to their down to his genes, um, called Tuvix. Uh, as you can see here in this picture, he still has the Vulcaneers, for example, but has Neelix's spots. Um, uh, I'll try to be a little brief because this is such a great topic that I feel like I could do an entire panel just on this topic because <laughs> uh, it opens so many cans of worms. The first is, of course, you know, the transporter accident, which we, I think we, we Josh, we have done entire segments just on transporter accidents. Um, the short answer to that is there's there's probably a, a lawsuit in there um, for a, defect, you know, def uh, a defective product. Um, it's most likely, you know, if it's an operate, operator error rather than an effective product that of course would negate that. Um, in any event, uh, I think the more fun things that I'd like to spend more time on today involve questions like, um, could the surviving spouses of Tuvok and Neelix, that would be uh, Tapel and Kess respectively, could they sue? Could they bring any claim in a court of law to try to get their husbands back? Um, and while we could definitely go down a long rabbit hole about this, because in, in our universe as we know it, our reality. Um, when a person is gone, they're gone. And in general, the law uh, in the United States and pretty much everywhere recognizes sort of identity of people in physical beings. <laughs> so while in the Star Trek universe, you could definitely have a person have their you know consciousness downloaded into a computer or you have data or Soji, for example, who are artificial life forms um, that do not involve then physical beings, right? Or physical bodies. Uh, so there's complicated notions in Star Trek about identity, at least in our notions of reality, we would not consider uh, Tuvok and Neelix to still exist, right? So there's this interesting argument about whether or not they exist within Neelix or whether or not they still exist, but sort of combined within uh, a Tuvix, sorry. Um, but for our purposes, generally speaking, you're not going to be able to go to court to try to uh, represent the interests of people who do not have bodies anymore. <laughs> so that's a serious problem. Um, the other one is a, a, a little funny from my perspective at least but it's still actually kind of interesting to think about is of course that you know if you wanted to have a uh, Kess or Tapel sue to get their husbands back um, the person who they're suing would be Tuvix um, since he uh, can undergo a uh, uh, another pr transporter procedure in order to split into his sort of parent entities I would say um, and of course 
in order to, in general, there are some interesting exceptions in the law that aren't relevant here, but in general, in order to actually bring someone into court and ask a judge to, to have them do something for you, be it give you money or perform an act for you, they have to have some kind of uh, connection to an injury that you have, right? If you were, you know, I think in this case, very clearly, Kess and Tapel have injuries, they've lost their husbands. Um, there's a potential, you know, wrongful death or things like that. Uh, but in this case, Tubix has no actual connection to that injury. He is the result of the transporter accident, but he did not cause it. And I think it would be interesting because there's a slightly different world here if somehow the entity known as Tubix actually uh, had some kind of hand in creating himself out of Tuvok and Helix. But in, in short, no, you're not going to be able to go into a U.S. court and have a judge um, uh, issue specific performance <laughs> against a person who has no culpable connection uh, to an injury that you have suffered. Um, and, and specifically here, and this is kind of the, 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 the rub of this entire episode, you're not going to have a judge anywhere in the United States order specific performance, which will result in that person's certain death. So in this case, he would, uh, from Tuvix's perspective, at least, he, a judge would be ordering his suicide in order to split. Um, and I, again, that this topic of whether Tuvix dies as a result of splitting him back into Tuvok and Neelix is itself a long, interesting discussion. Um, without getting it into it too much, I'm just going to take for granted for now that he is, in fact, a unique third individual um, who is a person recognizable under the law and who will cease to exist um, if he is split. So that brings us, of course, to, uh, uh, I think I can talk about things that happened in Voyager without worrying about spoiling them. Um, so that brings us, of course, to the conclusion of the episode in which uh, Captain Janeway personally um, performs the transporter operation to split uh, uh, Tuvix uh, back into Tuvok and Neelix. Of course, the doctor, the holographic doctor, refuses to participate because he does believe that Tuvix is a person and that splitting him will kill him. Um, so under his Hippocratic Oath, which of course is first do no harm, he refuses to participate. So this brings up the interesting question. Um, I, and I think this is actually why Captain Janeway does this personally is because she does wonder <laughs> if, uh, very seriously, if this is in fact killing Tuvix and doesn't want to order someone else to do that. Um, so there's, you know, the interesting question is, did she commit murder when she split uh, uh, Tuvix back into his constituent people? Um, so there's, I think, you know, if we if we accept that Tuvix is a person who dies as a result of this, that satisfies the first one. Of course, if I were Captain Janeway's defense lawyer, I would argue that he did not in fact die, that he split into two people. I might compare it to splitting Siamese twins. <laughs> um, but so if we accept though that Tuvix was a, was a unique individual who ceased to exist as a result of that, I think you would fit most of the elements, or sorry, all of the elements here for murder, including the part where she specifically intended the act to kill, <laughs> to kill him, to end his existence. You can again get into whether or not she believed that she was killing him, but she certainly specifically intended the act that resulted, resulted in his death. Um, you would then bring up potential defenses, again, if I were Captain Janeway's defense lawyer. Um, and while uh, most of the, the two defenses I have listed here, the first one, um, defense of others. Now, again, in our version of the law in which we generally associate identity with a body, having a body there, um, I don't think you could raise the, the argument for defense of others because she you know, may argue that she was acting in defense of Tuvok and Neelix in order to save their lives. 
Um, how, however, uh, in in our universe, we we do not recognize Tuvok and Neelix as still existing. They cannot, since they don't have bodies, they cannot exist. They are not there to be defended. In this case, it's more like um, uh, committing a human sacrifice in a world with magic, which will then bring them back to life. But they do not currently exist. So I don't think she can raise defense of others. I also don't think she can argue that she um, was merely exercising her duty. Um, and this uh, then I think also brings us into the subject of, is it at all different that they would be operating under military law? So um, I, I could go on at some length on a couple of different topics. I'll try to confine myself here. So uh, but one background principle that is worth mentioning, because it's uh, the, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, UCMJ, is not often discussed outside of particular niche military or legal circles. Um, there's a common notion that you lose a lot of rights when you join the military. And while that can be true, um, there's certainly a lot of rights that you don't check at the door when you put on a uniform. Um, and one of them, of course, would be uh, you still have basic civil liberties, including your right not to be killed. Um, and so Article 118 of the UCMJ is a prohibition essentially on murder. It reads that any person subject to this chapter who without justification or excuse unlawfully kills a human, uh, unlawfully kills a human being when he has a premeditated design to kill intends to kill or inflict great bodily harm. Um, is engaged or is engaged in an act which is inherently dangerous to another and evinces a wanton disregard of human life. So that's basically, again, the, the basic offense of murder with potential for defense and justification. Um, the other thing that I want to mention about the UCMJ is whether or not it condones an act like Captain Janeway did. So, because she doesn't solely justify her actions on the basis that, you know, Tuvix is not a person with cognizable interests different from Tuvok and Neelix or that she is trying to save Tuvok and Neelix alone. She also brings up the fact that as ship's captain, and again, they're stranded all the way in the Delta Quadrant um, all by themselves and will not see the, another Federation ship for years, um, that it is uh, strongly in the interest of her ship and her mission, which now is to, to get back to the Alpha Quadrant, um, to have her chief of security back and to some extent to have Neelix back since he was their cultural guide as well as morale officer. Um, and while Tuvix has the memories of both of them, he has very different interests and is no longer strictly interested in performing the, the, the duties of her experienced security officer. Um, and the short answer here is that no, the Uniform Code of Military Justice doesn't have anything in it to condone or otherwise excuse um, an order in which you can essentially paraphrase this as an order to die or an order to kill oneself. Now, there is a difference between, for example, ordering um, a soldier to do a, to undertake a mission that is extremely dangerous or even so dangerous that it is suicidal. Um, and of course, the worst that could happen in that case is that you can still have a soldier disobey an order, at least under our military law. They could get in trouble if it was a lawful order, of course. Um, but there is a difference between ordering a soldier to do something that was within your military authority, which is to, to, to do a very dangerous mission, and ordering them to do something that is not within your military authority, which is like to jump off a cliff. <laughs> and in this case, unfortunately, I do come out on the side that, uh, you know, Janeway, while I, I, I love her very much as a character and I understand why she did what she did, I do think that in this case, she did, did in fact <laughs> commit murder of Tuvix um, and may have to stand uh, a court martial for that when she gets home.
Oh, I actually suggest Josh as a, cause I know that we sometimes like to do trials of, of our favorite characters. Uh, I would be more than happy to participate in a trial of Captain Janeway for the murder of Tuvix. Oh, well, there are always possibilities. So let's, uh, let's move into the other issue of Romulan uh, refugees that we see in Picard after the supernova. Steve? Hi, everyone. So Star Trek is always very good at presenting cutting edge issues, powerful current events. And in the Picard timeline, we are confronted with the question, what do we do when an age old enemy needs our help? And we've seen this before in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, when the Klingons suffered a mining accident on Praxis. And that was in many ways modeled after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the former Soviet Union. Uh, so what do we do now when the Romulans have their own problems? What happens here uh, is that the Romulan star is going to go Nova. Um, can you help me move this along a little bit, Josh, with the slide? You know, we have here an event that will kill billions within the Romulan star empire. And the Federation in its finest traditions has agreed to help their old adversary relocate their population to, to safe planets. Um, so moving onwards, you know, that, that's sort of the 10,000 foot view and that's what we're gonna focus on today because you know, there's a lot of, we could spend really a lot of time here and barely scratch the surface. First of all, we've got refugee issues and there are some, uh, you know, there's international law that covers refugees. There are different sources of law, but if you analyze them, they have a couple common threads. And in general, we are talking about people who leave their country based on some form of well-founded fear due to some reason, such as political view or membership in a group such as race, religion, nationality, or social class. Those are typically historically the people that we have considered to be refugees. Then we also have a related category, the asylees, the main distinction here is that refugees request help when they are still in their home country. Asylees are typically people who sort of show up in the new country asking for help. So moving on, we have some very close parallels between refugee law and what we call human rights law. You know, longtime Star Trek fans will recall that in Star Trek VI, uh, the soon-to-be Chancellor Azad Boer be sort of um, chastised the Federation and said, you know, human rights law, there are some negative connotations there. This would probably be renamed to sort of interstellar species rights in the Star Trek world. However, there are some basic protections here for refugees, uh, basic rights, freedom from torture, freedom of opinion and expression, uh, things like that, you know, liberty, life, security, right to asylum. So if we're looking at what legal bases would there be to protect the citizens of the Romulan Star Empire? Here are some precedents for us. Moving onwards then, you know, the practical reality now is we need to help, we the Federation, how do we help these, um, the Romulans? It, it, in the first episode of the Picard series, the retired Admiral Jean-Luc Picard compares the process to Dunkirk. It's a tremendous mission. The logistical issues are you know, nearly a nightmare. We're gonna need a lot of ships. Starfleet ships would have, existing Starfleet ships would have to be diverted from current missions, or we build a new fleet of ships 
And even if with a new fleet of ships, you got to get them all operational. How are you going to crew them? How are you going to staff them? Uh, we're talking about a single operation that would require the much of the Federation's vast resources all to be allocated in, at one goal. So that would be you know, a, a huge ask really for the Federation. So moving on, you know, we, we, can all, we also have to find new locations for the resettlement uh, and that's not easy. And we, what we learn about this, you know, we, he, we see a lot of this in hindsight in the Picard series, but there are some novels that fill in the gaps the best of which, or at least one which really covers a lot is The Last Best Hope by Una McCormick, which does a fantastic job of covering this. What we find out is that ultimately the Federation cannot find enough suitable worlds on, in Romulan space, and they actually have to cross into the neutral zone and come into the Federation border. And what do you do then? There are a lot of legal issues there as well. Uh, so moving onwards, what what ultimately happens, just story-wise, narratively, we see a lot of this through the viewpoint of our old hero, now Admiral Jean-Luc Picard. He is in charge of the Romulan resettlement um, operation. And we have a number of issues. You know, if we set aside just the legal implications and the legal bases for protecting Romulans and for why we should help them, we've also got political realities. The Romulan government uh, has a what, what can be charitably described as a complicated relationship with the Federation. Romulan society is based on secrecy and denial. What we see then in the novelizations is that the Romulan Empire actually denies that the Nova is going to even happen for a while. And then they start to slowly acknowledge it, but they downplay the dangers and they don't engage in any huge resettlement effort. They just sort of do it slowly because their primary goal is to maintain at least the illusion of control. They want to show that they're still powerful, they're in control, and they just don't want to ask for help as much as possible. The Federation now wants to help an old adversary and an adversary that doesn't necessarily want to be helped. So what does the Federation do? You know, do you force your help upon them? Um, or do you, you have to respect their sovereignty? You know, we kind of go back to the prime directive in a way. And then within the Federation, we have our own internal politics. Some member worlds object to the volume of resources that are being diverted to this settlement effort. We get, in, in essence, a Federation first type of movement. And we see one Senator named Quest who represents a lot of the smaller Federation worlds. And they say, hey, what about us? Our interests are always trampled upon by the large worlds. We need to have some help. So yes, we care about the Romulans, but we should care maybe more about Federation member worlds. It is a monumental challenge to say the least. So moving on, I think we've covered that, that part for the, um, the, the refugees. Thank you, Steve. Well, let's talk about diversity in the practice of law, something Star Trek has shown with great uh, fanfare and uh, detail since court-martial in um, 1968. Uh, Bethany and Nari, can you two both help us understand uh, the representation that we've seen in Star Trek for attorneys. Absolutely. Well, I think the first thing is that, um, as you can see from this video image, that Star Trek has never shied away from representing, uh, you know, different kinds of people, even alien life forms, women, people of different races, in any position, in positions of authority, judges, lawyers, and all of that. And 
Uh, well, I think it's important to point out that their representations have not always been perfect, <laughs> um, particularly in terms of their representations of women. Um, it was still incredibly groundbreaking. I mean, Court Martial, this episode aired in 1967. And back then, the statistics for um, women and minorities in the law were just, I mean, terrible. Um, honestly, they're still kind of terrible. 86% uh, uh, of lawyers in the United States are non-Hispanic whites uh, in this country now. Um, and while at the lower levels, almost, well, actually we can wait for that for the, for the women's slide, but, um, you know, just the idea that 50 or some years ago, Star Trek just, and it, one of the wonderful things about it is it doesn't even treat it like it's a big deal. It treats it like it's normal. It's unfortunately not normal, but like it was very, very groundbreaking in the way that it represented people and, um, if I could highlight that, Bethany, I think one of the things that has made uh, Star Trek's diversity so special <laughs> is that it envisions a future in which this kind of representation um, is not remarkable. <laughs> in most instances, you know, um, having the prosecutor in the trial of Kirk in the 1967 episode was that she was a female was not remarked upon. <laughs> um, having Luhura on the bridge, having Captain Janeway be a captain. Um, mm -hmm it was a future in which it was not remarkable, which I think is, you know, humbly speaking for myself, uh, a wonderful aspiration. Absolutely, and very great just growing up to be able to watch representations of women in these awesome roles on screen was great. Um, and I think at the next slide we have, you know, some statistics about in 1967, when they were showing women as prosecutors and as judges, only 3% of lawyers and people in the practice of law were women. Uh, now in 2020, it's 37.4%, um, still far below the proportion of women that live in this country, um, but much better than it was back then. Um, interestingly though, we just noted that the statistic has actually gone down since 2018. There was a slightly higher proportion of women in the legal field in 2018. Um, and while we're not exactly sure what the cause of that, um, we might speculate it may have something to do with the pandemic and, uh, you know, women being forced at higher rates to exit the workforce to take care of children when, when schools are closed. Um, but either way, there has been a lot of progress and Star Trek has been at, you know, the forefront of, of imagining a world in which more progress of that nature has been achieved. Thank you both for helping us understand these issues. And Nari, let's talk about tribbles and whether or not they're part of a balanced breakfast. <laughs> so um, this, so I'm talking right now about uh, the short trek, the trouble with Edward. Short treks are some short uh, films that were released by CBS um, along with the new Star Trek series, Star Trek Discovery. Um, they're at, they're great, and this one in particular uh, blew me away. It's incredibly funny. If you haven't seen it yet, you should go go watch it. <laughs> um, but uh, in essence, it focuses around the uh, then youngest captain, uh, Starship captain in Federation history, Captain Lucero, depicted in this picture in yellow, um, taking command of a small science vessel 
Um, and as one of her first acts, she decides to have her uh, science officers get together to report on their ongoing projects to resolve a famine going on on the planet below that they orbit. Uh, and Lieutenant Larkin, depicted here in the red shirt, I believe that's red, um, uh, presents his project, which involves uh, creating tribbles, which will breed more rapidly in order to be consumed as a meat source. <laughs> um, this is this episode is continues to get weirder and quirkier from there. That's all I can say about that. Uh, the first couple of questions that this raises involve, of course, the medical and scientific experimentation that Lieutenant Larkin is performing on tribbles. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, is any of this uh, controlled by the Animal Welfare Act? And if it does, is Lieutenant Larkin violating it? So the Animal Welfare Act lays out some basic standards with regard to care and avoidance of pain and things like that for some animals that are involved in uh, uh, experimentation. Um, not all, so this is the first hurdle here, is that the Animal Welfare Act um, covers things like cats and dogs and primates, and in fact, most mammals, uh, warm-blooded mammals, but it specifically does not cover the animals that are most frequently used in uh, uh, lab experiments, including rats. Um, and, you know, while I, I really, really love tribbles, <laughs> um, given their level of seeming complexity, it is difficult to say whether or not they would have been included in an Animal Welfare Act uh, in a, had the United States had tribbles in its possession for experimentation at the time that, that act was passed. Um, but assuming that it does apply, um, then there are certain basic standards of care. Um, you, you were, uh, researchers are supposed to avoid uh, imposition of unnecessary pain. Um, that I'm not entirely sure here that uh, Lieutenant Larkin is following, you know, he, he doesn't give a whole lot of details or the show doesn't give a whole lot of details about how these uh, tribbles are being handled except for them sitting on top of tables and things. Um, except that we do know, of course, that uh, Lieutenant Larkin has tried eating at least a couple of them, uh, and which also raises an issue involving uh, uh, the Humane Slaughter Act. Um, so it's, you know, he would have to be following certain guidelines with respect to that. Um, I think given his level of competence, it is safe to assume that he is probably running afoul of some laws that govern the welfare of animals. So then last thing I'll mention just briefly on, uh, sorry, uh, on that topic is that uh, there is of course an issue. There is actually an issue in this episode of human cloning um, because minor, <laughs> minor comedic spoiler, um, Lieutenant Larkin gets tribbles to reproduce at the rate that they do. Apparently before he interfered with them, they reproduced very slowly um, by infusing them with his own DNA. That is as, as horrible and gross and hilarious as it sounds, <laughs> um, which raises one interesting question, which is, you know, does, could this be human cloning? And if so, would that violate any laws here in the United States? And I think this is kind of interesting to mention just because I think it surprises most people to learn that there are not actually any federal level laws, at least, that prohibit uh, human cloning. There are, however, plenty of ways that the federal law indirectly prohibits it through restrictions on funds and other things like that, so that we effectively have a ban on it in the United States, even though it's not uh, expressly so. And some states do outright ban it. Um, and the other thing that I wanted to talk about with this episode uh, is a hostile work environment. 
So um, in this episode, and I think this is kind of fun to think about, uh, from both uh, Captain Lucero and Lieutenant Larkin's perspective. So first, I think the obvious one, which is, does Captain Lucero have a claim under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act uh, that uh, based on uh, Lieutenant Larkin's uh, sexist comments and other sort of, you know, mean and derogatory things, uh, there's a great scene where he's standing around by the water cooler trying to say really nasty things. He submits a bunch of anonymous complaints saying nasty things about her. Um, so I think that a lot of his conduct, um, you know, does raise a colorable claim of harassment that could form a hostile work environment. Now, one thing that again may surprise some people um, is that you do not have to be a uh, supervisor to be uh, sort of a perpetrator of harassment under Title VII. Um, Title VII also encompasses a, a hostile work environment that could be created by harassment from a coworker or even a inferior uh, or subordinate employee. Uh, it does raise an additional hurdle when you are talking about harassment coming from um, someone who isn't a supervisor because you would have to show that the, in order for the employer to be liable under Title VII uh, for the acts of a non-supervising employee, you would have to show that the employer knew about the harassment and failed to take prompt uh, inappropriate corrective action. So assuming that Captain Lucero promptly reports this and, you know, if for some reason uh, uh, Starfleet did not act on it in a timely fashion, uh, there, there's a colorable there's a colorable claim there now the kind of i think funny way to look at this as well is does captain larkin uh have a claim under title seven because uh, you know from captain larkin's point of view or sorry lieutenant larkin's point of view um you know he was doing fine under the previous captain uh, fine at least he hadn't been demoted or transferred at least um and then Captain Lucero comes in and all of a sudden, you know, everything is terrible for him. She's telling him to discontinue his experiments with the Tribbles, which is his groundbreaking research. It's going to change the world. She doesn't recognize his genius, um, you know, puts him down uh, uh, in front of other staff members, perhaps. Um, so, you know, he may genuinely feel from his perspective that he is being uh, subjected to harassment. He's maybe being subjected to adverse employment action because she does eventually uh, attempt to transfer him to another ship. Um, and he may believe that this is sort of an unfair, he's being singled out, um, that she's out to get him. Does any of that raise a colorable claim under Title VII? The answer is no. So Title VII does not protect against general host hostile work environments or general talk generally toxic supervisors or coworkers. Um, Title VII is specifically directed towards uh, harassment or adverse actions that are undertaken um, based on race, color, religion, sex, which includes pregnancy, national origin, age, disability, or genetic information. I mean, it has, you have to be able to show that whatever harassment or adverse action is you, you believe is being directed at you is because of those things. And in some circuits, in order to even make out your initial claim, you would have to show that people who do not belong to the protected group that you belong to um, are being treated more favorably. So in this case, you know, there are other, there are other male science officers aboard um, who Captain uh, Lucero does not treat in this fashion uh, because they are not 
complete idiots. And um, I think she would have a very easy time either defending herself um, in a circuit that doesn't make that as part of the initial claim uh, or a very easy time dismissing it in a place that does make it part of the initial claim. So uh, short answer is I think, yes, Captain Lucero could potentially bring a Title VII action if Starfleet doesn't act promptly. Uh, no, Lieutenant Larkin, had he survived the events of this episode <laughs> would not have a, a claim. Thank you, Nari. Let's take a look at discrimination against XBs because for some reason, people are not cool with former members of the Borg re-entering society. Steve, can you help us understand these issues? So as any Star Trek fan knows, the Borg are one of, in my opinion, the greatest villains um, ever created in the science fiction you know, genre. What do we know about Borg drones? You know, XBs essentially are ex-Borg drones. So let's start off again. Borg drones are, they, they are made up of species that are typically assimilated, assimilated against their own will, and then they are forced to join a group consciousness. And as drones, they commit acts of violence and destruction, war crimes, they assimilate entire worlds, people, for their technology, they conquer. Now, the flip side of this, and part of what makes them so fascinating, is because they can be deprogrammed. And we have seen several examples of this during the Star Trek series. We have Hugh, one of the early Borg drones who was freed from assimilation. And we see him in the Picard series. Many years later, he's even more free of the Borg implants now than ever before and looking far more human. So we learn when Picard goes to the artifact that it is possible to undo some assimilation on a level never before seen. So the number, as a result, the number of XBs has grown over time. Now, what do we do legally with these XBs as they continue to grow? How do we treat them? Uh, you know, we can look at for, in terms of legal precedents, there are many laws, rules that prohibit discrimination and that protect groups of members of various groups. Here's a sampling, but we protect race, religion, natural origin, age, sex, sexual orientation, and gender identity, pregnancy, familial status, and veteran status. So can we protect XBs? I mean, let, let's, let's talk about that and explore that a little bit. Again, kind of remaining at a high level because as fascinating a topic as this is, it, it would require a pretty lengthy discussion um, to, to really hit it, you know, hit all the bases. But uh, one possibility that has been raised is that we could find protection for XBs under, if, if we can move on to the next slide here, under the Americans with Disabilities Act. This is a possible source of legal protection because the law itself protects entities and prohibits discrimination on the basis of some form of disability. And this would depend on how we classify XBs, you know, former boards. And that really is the million dollar question. How do we classify them? Is being assimilated and then becoming unassimilated, deassimilated, is that a disability? Well, a disability under the existing laws defined as a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. XBs have just typically just suffered tremendous physical drama, emotional scarring, 
and it limits their major life activities, even for those that escape the collective and try to have their own individual lives. We see that they all have sort of varying degrees of success. Some are able to go on and live fuller lives like Seven of Nine and Picard. Others actually will die shortly afterwards, as we see from the trio that appeared in Star Trek Voyager. Um, you know, moving onwards here though, we, we do need to focus really on the question of how do we classify them? Hugh refers to the XBs as the most hated species in the quadrant. Well, let's look at a couple possibilities for how we classify former Borg drones uh, or XBs. If they're property, and this would be really the harshest definition for classification for XBs, then they really have very little rights, very few rights, if any at all. And the XBs would not have much recourse for legal protection. And they would be really subject to the whims of their owners, the collective, or anyone that could lay claim to them. And certainly some people do treat Borg drones as property, as we see in the Picard series, there's a large black market for Borg parts and Borg drones are hunted so that people can harvest their implants because the implants themselves are valuable and can be used for many purposes. So this would be, if you are, you know, if you are an XB or if, you're, if you care about the XBs, the property classification is the one you want to fight for sure. Uh, next, we have war criminals. Could they be considered war criminals similar to soldiers or generals who in wartime commit terrible acts? Um, and we've had war crimes trials in the past. There is international law precedent for how we deal with people like this. You know, it, it's a real struggle for society in general, how to deal with people who commit what often would be considered unspeakable acts. However, it's committed during wartime, a time during which we, st we tolerate things that we would not otherwise tolerate during peacetime. Uh, if XBs are war criminals, the good news is they would at least have some more rights, you know, some rights to counsel, but they would have to stand trial and no one knows how, you know, how that would, um, you know, that would play out. Similarly, a related category would be if we classify them as soldiers following orders, and if the XB said, look, you know, I, I knew this was wrong, but I did it because I had to follow orders, the orders of the collective in this case, you know, how would that play out for the XBs? Uh, you know, there are, there are some possibilities here for the XBs, but this would be difficult as well, because in general, the laws recognize that a soldier should not obey a immoral or illegal order, and certainly terrorizing, destroying entire planets, um, destroying entire civilizations and individuals would likely qualify as an unlawful order. Finally, and this would be the most favorable classification for XBs would be victims. And this is how Picard comes to see the XBs when he visits the artifact, that the Borg drones, former Borg drones are in fact victims because they were taken against their will doing things that they did not want to do, and they were trying to escape. It's sort of like being alive, but not being alive, being alive yet not being in control of what happens. And then the companion point, you know, after we talk about how to classify them and how to deal with them legally, where do we put them? And this is similar to the question we tackled earlier about the Romulan refugee, refugee crisis. Where do XBs belong? Do they get repatriated to their former homeworld? Would the former homeworld from which the species came actually accept 
a former Borg drone who used to be a member of that species? I mean, we don't know. Should we create a new XB homeworld perhaps? Uh, you know, maybe, uh, but we would have to find a place. Uh, we could do something like the Romulans do with the re re reclamation project. Although, you know, that was certainly, the Romulans are not really known for their altruism. You know, that was really a research project for them to develop additional technology and, you know, for other purposes. Um, what do we do? You know, and we, can we de-assimilate other Borg drones too? There's no easy answer. And I think that's, again, what Star Trek does so well is that there's not, there's not so much a black and white, but there's a lot of gray. Josh. Thank you, Steve. That was, uh, it's a fantastic issue to explore in uh, Picard. Circuit Judge Owens, can you uh, illuminate us on the issues of attorney competency for Klingons and a system that seems much more rough and tumble than our own? Oh, certainly it is, Josh. There are some similarities. There are some big differences on the Klingon bar exam. The answer to every question is simply honor. Sometimes honorable but usually honor will do. And it seems to be that's the correct answer to pass the bar for those who have taken it. Uh, but there are some similarities and some significant differences between the systems. First off, the very beginning of this episode in which Captain Archer's on trial for allegedly assisting some people who are rebelling from the Klingon empire, uh, he's told you've got to prove your innocence. So right off the bat, we know we're in a little bit of a different arena, but in this arena, we do have prosecutors and defense counsel. And so let's take a minute and talk about the roles that they play in this episode and what we can learn in terms of our legal system. So first we have, I believe we have a slide on the prosecutor. Good old Arak. He is kind of your classic Klingon guy. He's played very well in this episode. And he does have an obligation to pursue the truth, and he has an obligation to bring charges if probable cause exists. I think one question in this case is, was there probable cause to bring this case? Because this case, the allegation that Captain Archer, in effect, aided and abetted rebels against the Klingon Empire by taking them on board his ship and then actually attacking a Klingon warship, the entire case is based on the word of one person. That is Captain Duras the Klingon captain. So when your case is based on one witness, you need to know whether that witness is telling the truth or not. And the ABA rules, you'll see up there on the screen that you could not bring a case if you know that the case lacks probable cause. So what does Oric have to do? He has to take steps to make sure that the witness's story uh, the Captain Duras is telling is in fact accurate. If he has reasons to believe it's not accurate, there's actually a Supreme Court case, Napoli versus Illinois, that talks about how prosecutors may not knowingly put on false testimony. Did O'Rourke do that here? You know, you can make the argument he did, or look, we'll take it at face value. We can accept the fact that he believed the story of the captain. If that's the case, then he did not violate the, uh, the, the guidelines. If he did know there was falsity here, then he would have violated the guidelines. I also say this about Orak. He has a bad demeanor in the courtroom. He's always interrupting witnesses. This does seem to be the Klingon way, but I certainly would not tolerate that in the courtroom. I think the more, more interesting character in this episode is the defense attorney, Kolos. Uh, it's clear he is an old guard attorney. He has kind of resigned himself to the fact that the Klingon justice system is not what it once was. He talks about the loss of honor 
for example. And at the beginning of the trial, he, he mails it in. Uh, literally, he doesn't even cross-examine the one Klingon witness against Archer. So at the beginning of the trial, he was not doing a good job. He was not effective. But then over time, he kind of gets his mojo back. And he realizes, hey, wait a second. I used to be a good lawyer. In fact, he talks about how he at one time he had won 200 cases. And he's saying, now, you know what? I'm going to turn it on. I'm going to get that mojo back. I'm going to be the lawyer I once was. And then does a fantastic job on behalf of Captain Archer. Now, this episode actually reaches a verdict. I mentioned sometimes it happens in Star Trek, sometimes it doesn't, this one it does. And Archer is found guilty and sent to that horrible salt mine planet that Klingon sent everyone to basically to die. You might say, well, how was he effective then? His client was convicted. Well, first you can't weigh a lawyer's ability or performance on the result. Sometimes it's an unbuildable case. But second, the most important thing he did was he made sure that Captain Archer avoided the death penalty. And in many times in cases, you have to define victory a certain way. Defense attorneys may have a, guilt, a client who's clearly guilty of first degree murder, but if they can convince the jury not to do this, the special circumstance, which would lead to a death penalty, that actually is victory. So in this case, I think Colos was very effective by saving the life of Captain Archer. He did though forget the most important thing when you're a defense attorney is the following, that whatever you do, if someone's going to jail, make sure it's not you, make sure it's your client. And unfortunately, uh, through his advocacy, through his mojo, as I called it, he ends up getting the same sentence as Captain Archer. Captain Archer is released, he escapes, poor Colos is left in that salt mine. Anyway, great episode, uh, great explanation of how important defense attorneys can be because you saw what happens when he mailed it in. And you also saw when he really is advocating for his client. And I love his closing because it's, it is, granted, it's the blaze of glory, but it's what lawyers dream of being able to do of swing for the fences with, uh, for somebody's rights so they're not trampled upon. Yes. Which brings us to the second trial episode that is probably one of the best. I, I think rules of engagement and judgment are tied at number one for uh, being the most accurate trials that we see in Star Trek. And Bethany, can you help us understand uh, the legal issues with Worf's uh, trial that happens in, on Deep Space Nine? Absolutely. Now, Rules of Engagement is one of my favorite trial episodes in Star Trek. It's a very interesting premise. It's actually uh, the Klingon Empire is requesting the extradition of Worf, and it, this extradition request is based on uh, Worf having destroyed a Klingon civilian transport. Um, and the, the whole theme of this trial is whether Worf destroying the civilian transport was truly an accident or whether he intended to murder these Klingon civilians. Uh, now, it turns out the entire incident was staged. There were no civilians aboard the transport. Um, it was all invented in order to try to create fodder for this extradition request. Um, and, but it was a very interesting trial in general just because of, of the types of evidence that they introduced and the various things that happened throughout this uh, episode. Um, so one of the more interesting types of evidence that was introduced was uh, they had one of the witnesses um, offer evidence on Worf's 
uh, conduct during one of the holodeck games, uh, essentially in this game, um, uh, uh, Worf would uh, pretend to be this very famous Klingon warrior. And at the end of the, um, the holodeck experience, that warrior would order the complete destruction of this civilian town. And that was how the, the episode ended. And so the prosecutor in this case tried to, to use that as evidence of Worf's violent nature of his, uh, you know, desire to kill Klingon civilians and all that. This is very interesting. This kind of reminded me of the general argument that, uh, you know, violent video games cause violent behavior in people, um, an argument that really hasn't proven to be true based on studies, but um, in general, this type of evidence is, is not admissible in court, and I, we would classify that as character evidence, evidence of someone's character. Uh, it can be admissible if, for example, uh, Worf's counsel, Cisco, had tried to introduce evidence of Worf's peaceful nature, then the prosecutor could have come back and said, no, no, he's not peaceful. We, they're allowed to rebut the evidence, uh, uh, character evidence, if the defense counsel opens the door to that evidence. Um, one tricky way in which character evidence sometimes comes in is, is if intent is an aspect of the crime, uh, so a person's intent in doing some, something, and I think that they are arguing that what's in Klingon, what's in Worf's heart, and actually Klingons have two hearts, but whichever heart is responsible for intent, what is there, um, whether it matters. And so I think what the prosecutor was trying to say, and he mentions that this holodeck experience, Worf played it the day before he blew up the civilian transport. So I think that he would try to argue that the evidence is demonstrating that Worf wants to kill civilians, that this is part of something he enjoys doing. Um, and given the proximity and time to the actual incident, then maybe a judge would let it in. I think a defense attorney would argue, no, they're just trying to show that Worf is a violent person in general, and that's uh, an inadmissible character evidence. Um, but either way, uh, a very interesting aspect of this trial. And I think there were other two, two key points we wanted to hit on, which is uh, a couple of other uh, ethical issues. First of all, they faked the civilian transport. There was no civilians that actually died. Falsifying evidence, generally something you shouldn't do ever. Um, I, I will say not that this is good, but if Cisco and the crew had not found out about the false evidence before they agreed to extradite Worf, and Worf was extradited to the Klingon Empire, I would say there was probably nothing they could have done about it if later they found out the evidence was false. I think at that point, it would have to be a political resolution. Um, but uh, either way, um, not a good idea to falsify evidence under any circumstance. Um, and then there is also uh, somewhat of a plea officer. So at some point, the uh, Klingon prosecutor talks to Cisco and says basically, hey, if Worf, if you agree to this extradition and Worf comes over, I will represent him in Klingon court. Like I will essentially, I will fight for him. I will, you know, make sure his sentence is as light as possible or whatever it is. And so that in essence could be characterized as a plea, plea offer. Cisco rejects it out of hand, but that is the type of thing he would have had to discuss with Worf and get Worf's 
uh, permission to reject or Warp would have the opportunity to accept it. And and the duty to inform a client of a plea offer offer is a lawyer's ethical duty. So if Cisco didn't do that, then that would be a violation of that duty. Thank you, Bethany. Well, let's talk about uh, the different trials that we've seen uh, in Discovery Season 3, because it's a very different world when it comes to uh, having a logical debate. Steve? So hopefully uh, everyone's seen Star Trek Discovery Season 3. Uh, you know, Discovery Season 3 takes a show in a new direction. We go into the far future, which is uh, some real bold storytelling. And we find ourselves wondering, okay, what's changed and what has stayed the same? You know, as the old saying goes, uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, well, here are a couple of um, you know, orienting rules for us. First of all, we learned that the planet Vulcan has been renamed to Navarre. Navarre itself, the name has it, its origin, it traces its origin all the way back to a Star Trek fanzine in 1968 literally meaning two forms. Two forms, which also can be described as two different viewpoints looking at the same thing or two natures. It's very appropriate because this is essentially the culmination of Ambassador Spock's life work that we see in the Next Generation timeline, where Spock says that Vulcans and Romulans will eventually live together and coexist. Uh, however, we also learned that the coexistence has not been easy, and because of that, Navarre withdrew from the Federation, which is really uh, difficult for longtime Trek fans to accept because Vulcan was one of the founding members of the Federation and one of the key members. So we are now in a new, new world where one of the key members of the Federation is no longer part of, of the United Federation of Planets. And in terms of resolving disputes, we have an interesting story element where the Federation is trying to obtain what's called the SB19 data. Navarre refuses. And so Michael Burnham, who provides an in here as the sister of Spock, she is a graduate of the Vulcan Science Academy and invokes what's called the Tikal Inket. So moving on, we see that the Tikal Inket is actually a scientific inquiry process, not necessarily intended as a judicial trial, but it is a process that has the goal of truth seeking. It's a philosophical process designed to unearth deep truth and there are a couple of requirements. It can only be invoked by graduates of the Vulcan Science Academy or what is now the Navarre Science Institute. Essentially, a an invoker, the invoker who, uh, who requests the proceeding must defend a hypothesis before a quorum of three peers assisted by a Shalankai um, Romulan or a Chasset uh, Vulcan term, essentially some kind of an advocate or representative and then the quorum chair of the three can dismiss the challenge if there is unanimous consent from the other two peers. The challenger, in this case, Michael Burnham, can also withdraw, essentially dismiss their own case. So what we get now, moving on, is we, it sets the stage for this fascinating dispute. We have a quorum, three members of the panel, as we discussed previously. The three members here are one Romulan, one Vulcan, 
uh, younger Vulcan, who is the leader, uh, considered sort of the spiritual leader of much of the current Vulcan schools of thought. And then we have on the far right, uh, a Vulcan lady who seems to be a bit more of a peacemaker. And Michael Burnham has to get up and essentially defend her thesis, which is you, Navarre, need to provide Starfleet, the Federation, with the SB-19 data. And her chassette, her advocate, ends up being her mother. Now, in terms of how we proceed, there are no official witnesses called, although what we see is that the advocate can question the invoker. And this is also very similar to an appellate court argument, a three-judge panel before the circuit courts, for example, where you have an attorney get up and they essentially get peppered by questions from the three judges on the panel. And they do their best you know, to try to uh, answer the questions, try to make their point. And what's fascinating is we also see there's multiple levels of events that are happening here that when a question is asked, What's going on is not just that question, but that judge who asked the question may also be trying to make a point for a fellow judge or argue a point or maybe get out in front of something. And the audience is not just the three judge panel, but it, this is presented in front of a larger audience, particularly because Michael Burnham is the sister of Spock who has now been elevated to some, elevated to some form of um, canonical status. You know, People really respect him. Uh, this is also similar to a thesis defense in a PhD program where a candidate has to present and defend their thesis before a panel of professors. And you have both the substance of the thesis being defended and there may be politics involved there as well. You know, is, is your advisor someone strong or is the, um, is, does the panel have some form of agenda or you know, hidden agenda uh, or can you get a fair hearing? You know, so moving onward, what we get then here is the invoker presents their argument. They can be questioned. The advocate can also question or speak. And in this situation, the advocate in fact questions my, you know, the, the client, Michael Burnham. And we don't get, uh, we don't have particular witnesses. There's no judge to rule on objections. There's no rules of evidence because people discuss things that are not in front of the forum. They say, well, here's what the SB19 data says. Well, okay, I mean, that right there could be hearsay, there could be foundational problems, um, but here the people just talk about it freely. And also we have audience members that just get up and speak at some point. So what's really interesting is this is still a, a method of dealing with disputes that is rooted in ancient tradition. Vulcan itself and Navarre now is a fascinating blend of new science, but also old sort of ancient ways. And in the big picture, the invoker, as we learn, can achieve their goal without convincing the quorum, so long as they convince you know, somebody else in the room. Uh, Josh? Thank you, Steve. Everyone, thank you for watching our panel today. Uh, you can follow The Legal Geeks at thelegalgeeks.com and all social media at The Legal Geeks. For all of our panelists today, thank you for your time, talent, and expertise. And everyone, live long and prosper. <laughs>